Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I'm going to do, come on in, I'm going to do some review because it's been about a month since we looked at the book of Hebrews and we may have new people coming in. And so we're like more than halfway through the book. We started chapter 10 back in December and we didn't get all the way through it. And so let's just open to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to walk us through briefly each chapter just so we can kind of get our bearings straight and remember um, where where we are. And if you remember, guys, there's a key word that shows up, I think, 13 times in the book of Hebrews, and it's the word better. Some translations use the word superior. And so the whole theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than what? The Old Testament sacrificial system. Because who's the audience of Hebrews? The audience of Hebrews is Jews that were converted to Christianity that were tempted to fall back into Judaism. And so the writer goes to great pains to show how all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, covenants, um, blood sacrifices, the priesthood, all of that stuff was good for its purpose. Come on in, guys. It was good for its purpose, but it was a shadow of things to come. So let's just kind of trace through where we've been the first 10 chapters. So in Hebrews chapter 1, we remember that Jesus, basically the theme of Hebrews chapter 1 is Jesus is supreme. He is the, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe. He's more superior than the angels. Jesus is the final word of God. And that's how he starts the book of Hebrews. Then in chapter 2, we have our first warning. You remember the warning? This is way back in September. What's the warning? Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we what? Drift away. So there was the temptation, first of all, to drift. And we said drift was a slow, a slow-going thing, right? Like it was a nautical term that you could slowly drift away from the, the anchor or, or from the, the, the base or your home. And you really, it's imperceptible. You didn't really know you're drifting And so this is kind of how it starts. You're slowly drifting away from the gospel. You're slowly (laughs) drifting away from Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how Jesus came in the flesh, how he's the founder of our salvation. Then in chapter 3, he talks about how Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was the builder of the house in the Old Testament. And as great as God's house was in the Old Testament, Jesus is the builder of the new house. We are that house. And then we had that whole chapter 3 and 4. What was the warning over and over again? Today, if you hear his voice, do not, what? Harden your heart. And he used that whole illustration of the Old Testament generation that were in the land and they spied out the land and they decided not to go take the land and they rebelled. And what happened to them? They died in the wilderness after having to wander for 40 years. So actually look at chapter 3, verse 12. There's another warning there. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to what? 
fall away from the living God. So there's, there's a warning. So we have don't drift away, don't harden your heart, don't fall away. Then all the way in chapter 4, he uses the example of that Old Testament generation and said, they did not enter the promised land. And here's what happens to you. If you continue in rebellion, if you harden your heart, if you do not trust Christ for salvation, you too will not enter the promised land. You won't enter the rest. And we talked about the rest being heaven. Okay, then in chapter 5, he talks about Jesus being the high priest. Okay, Jesus being the high priest. And then he introduces Melchizedek. And he basically just starts with Melchizedek and says, this is really, really difficult. I don't have time to explain Melchizedek right now. We'll get back to it in chapter 7. Okay. But then in chapter 6, what does he say in verse 4? Chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is another warning against what? Falling away. And what does He say this time? If you get to the point where you fall away, it's impossible to bring you back to salvation. Now, we'll talk about this in just a moment. Is this a passage talking about losing your salvation? We said no. We said this is a person who made a profession of faith, but did not have possession of faith, and they did not persevere to the end, and it showed that they weren't truly saved. We're going to get back to that. But he, he gives warnings all through. He's got the don't drift away, don't harden your heart, don't fall away. There, there, these warnings are coming all through the book of Hebrews. Then, as you get to chapter 7, the big issue, and I remember what I said, you guys aren't laying awake at night wondering about this. You're not, you're not losing sleep over why is Jesus not from the lineage of Aaron and why is he from the lineage of Judah and he's called a priest. You guys aren't losing sleep over that, aren't you? And so he introduces, come on in guys, he introduces this whole concept in chapter 7 of this crazy king that we've never heard of, Melchizedek. Now what did we learn about Melchizedek? He was the only person in the Old Testament who was both a priest and a king, okay? And so he's a type and shadow of Jesus. He is the priest king. He was the king of Salem, and he was the priest of God, Melchizedek. And so Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Then you get to chapter 8. And it talks about how Jesus is better. He's the best. He's the better high priest of the, of the new covenant. And then we talked a lot in chapters 8 and 9 about the atonement. We talked about how in the Old Testament, the day of atonement, they would go into the Holy of Holies. They would sacrifice a lamb. They would put the blood of the lamb um, on the mercy seat. It would cover the sins of the people. And what was the big thing that we talked about in the Old Testament? Did the Old Testament blood sacrifice system, could it ever completely forgive sin? Could it forgive high-handed sins? Remember, it only covered unintentional sins. So if you committed a high-handed or an intentional sin, it was not atoned for. And so the big thing we talked about is it could not clear the conscience. In other words, The Old Testament sacrificial system could never get down to the root of your sin problem. It can only cover your sin for a year, 
and only really outward sins. It never got to your heart. It never got to the, to, to the core of who you are. It can never cleanse you from the inside out. And his argument is, is, is that when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice is able to do completely what the Old Testament could do. Cleanse us from the inside out. Totally forgive us. Give us a new heart. Give us a new life. Make us in a right standing with God. And so we talked about in chapter 10 how Jesus, the big word that showed up in chapter 10 was Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, meaning it was never to be repeated. It was a one-time sacrifice. It was a perfect sacrifice. And then our last time we met a month ago, if you remember way back then, um, we, we looked there at verses chapter 10, verses 19 through 24, and the big thing we talked about last time was how we can spur each other on to love and good works. And the big issue was that there were some in the church that were not meeting together for church. They were forsaking meeting together. They were not meeting for encouragement. Okay? That's where we are. That, that's, that's Hebrews in a nutshell. Okay? So far, that's like, almost 15 weeks of where we've been. Now, we get to Hebrews 10, part 2, and verses 26 through 31, we probably have the strongest warning in the book of Hebrews against apostasy. Now, we have to ask again the question. That may be a word you're not familiar with. Um, what, what is apostasy? It really means falling away, a falling away. It does not mean losing your salvation. It means a falling away, and we're going to talk about that. So let's read Hebrews 10, chapter 10. That's where we are now tonight. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, and let's hear this strong warning against apostasy. You guys ready? Here we go. 4, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately... Deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a strong warning. Okay? So, in verse 26, the author uses the term sinning deliberately. If we go on sinning deliberately. In the Greek text, this word is first in the sentence. And usually when a word shows up first in a Greek sentence, it's, it's meant to have emphasis, to be strong, to, to show what, what the author is really trying to get at. And so that word can mean knowingly, willingly. What are some of your translations say? Does it say willingly, knowingly, deliberately? That word? Deliberately. Okay. So what he's talking about here is... What does it mean to sin deliberately? Intentional. Intentionally. And what, what, what does it say if we go on? So what's he talking about here? He's talking about ongoing, habitual, intentional 
deliberal, uh, deliberate, trying to think of another L word, deliberate, ongoing, habitual, intentional, deliberate sinning. So let me ask you a deep theological question. Maybe it's not that deep. Can a true Christian do this? It's a trick question. Can a true, authentic, born-again, regenerate Christian continue in that state? I would say we do every day. Okay. Okay. So, eight. Okay, go ahead, Russell. What were you going to say? We'd have remorse for it, where a non-believer is not going to even somebody that proclaim it. They don't have the remorse of knowing that, hey, somebody shed blood for what I just did wrong. Okay, so a Christian is going to have the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin. A Christian is going to want to repent. And what happens if even the Holy Spirit convicts you and you don't repent and you're a true Christian? What is God going to do? We'll get to this in chapter 12. He's going to discipline you to get you back. Okay? So we have to make a distinction about who he's talking about here. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He's giving a strong warning here to those in the congregation who, like he's been doing all along with these warnings, are in danger of slipping into ongoing, habitual, intentional, deliberate lifestyle pattern of sin. It started out, remember it started out, you drift. And then as you drift, you kind of get a hardened heart. Then you kind of move into rebellion. And then it moves into full-blown apostasy where you're falling away. Okay, And so this is dealing with these intentional sins. So what's an intentional sin? What's a deliberate sin? Who has a choice to sin or not? As Christians, we okay. have the choice versus before we're <coughs> in sin. Okay. So because of we're in sin, we don't have that choice, whereas after we then have a choice. So it's it's still intentional because every one of us sins every okay. day. So there's intentionality. There's intentionality, but is... Is your as a Christian is your lifestyle marked by deliberate, intentional, habitual sin? It shouldn't be. Okay, we're not talking about perfection here. When you never sin, we're saying that sinning deliberately is this whole. Well, let's let's talk about what he what he says here because what he's saying here, he says if we go on sinning deliberately after what? What's your text say there in verse twenty five six? After receiving the truth. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to... And we, we, you can go back and look at Numbers 15. That was just the difference between high-handed sins and unintentional sins. Um, that there are some unintentional sins that we commit, and then there's deliberate sins that we commit. Um, but what does it mean to receive the truth? It's really an expression of believing the gospel. John eight thirty two. Jesus said, You will know the truth... And the truth will set you free. 
Ephesians 1.13, in him, that's Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the gospel, you believe, the word of truth, the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, and so here's the issue. Receiving the truth means you once believed the gospel, but now you are deliberately rejecting Jesus. Do you have a category in your mind for a person that does that? Okay. So here's the question that everybody wrestles with in Hebrews. Does this mean that one has lost his or her salvation? Once saved, always saved, okay. That's easy to say. Okay. So when they receive the truth, okay, let's let's look contextually. Let's let's go back in our memory bank, back to Hebrews chapter six for a minute. And I know this was many months ago, but in Hebrews chapter six, remember. He listed all those things that, that, that happened to a person. They were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They saw miracles. So here's the question. Can you actually believe the facts of the gospel? Can you be in church? Can you be around miracles? Can you be around preaching and, and receive all that stuff and never be saved? Yes. Okay. If you're truly saved... What's going to prove out in your life? Are you going to fall away? If you're truly saved, will you fall away? Okay. If you're not saved and you think you're saved and you may profess that you're saved, but you're not really saved, can you fall away? Yes. Does it mean you lose your salvation? No, because you never had salvation in the first place. And I've, I've said this many times, guys. There's a difference between a profession of faith and what? A possession of faith. What's the difference between a profession of faith and a possession of faith? About 18 inches, okay. <laughs> the Bible says we need both, really, don't we? When we profess faith, we are publicly telling people that we are a Christian. That's usually done in the waters of baptism. When you're baptized, you're publicly professing to your church family and to the world that you're a Christian. But can you do that and not be saved? Yes. What, what has to happen? You actually have to have true, saving faith in Christ. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you a passage in 1 John 2.19 that kind of explains this. So 1 John 2.19 says this. Is it on your sheet? No. It is? Oh, okay. So, I, I, so I, I, I'm just skipping over my stuff. Okay, apostasy is not losing... I just explained this. Let's, let's just read what's on your sheet. Apostasy is not losing what you didn't have in the first place. Apostasy is the deliberate and willful 
and rebellion, continual act of rejecting Jesus after you made either a public profession of faith or identified with the church. So let's read 1 John 2.19. Okay, let's just break down this verse. They went out from us. Okay, so let's just... They, we got two groups, right? We got a they and they got an us. Who's writing 1 John? John. Okay. So who who would he consider would be the us? Believe. Let's just can we just say believers, the church, Christians. Okay. But there's a they. What did they do? They did what? They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us now it's a lot of words there (laughs) us them when what's john saying there was a group of people that at one time identified with the church they identified with us they were believers they professed faith but what did they do what does it mean they went out they They left they fell away They, they they abandoned Okay, they abandoned, they went away. Proving what? What did it prove? They weren't really, truly believers in the first place because if they would have been believers, what would they have done? Stayed. And the fact that they left proves that they weren't truly believers. Now, let's go back in in Hebrews chapter 10. What was that? They They didn't have the foundation. Yeah, they didn't have the actual saving faith. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10, okay, where we are. Look at verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for (laughs) sins. Now, go up in the verse. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the day, or all the more as you see the day drawing near. What was going on in the church? There were people who were on their way of going out. What were they not doing? They weren't assembling together with the us. They weren't gathering with the church. They, weren't, they were forsaking or neglecting meeting together. And we'll get to those reasons here in just a moment. But there were some in the church that were saying, hey, we're drifting away, we're moving away, we're walking away, we don't want to be identified with the church. Now, did that, does that mean that they had committed apostasy yet? No. Could it mean they're in danger of it? Because what does John say? If they fully go out, and again, we don't know. Here's the problem. There's always a possibility for somebody to come back, is there not? Except for Hebrews chapter 6, where it says it's impossible if you get to a certain point. I would say this. I would err on the side that there's always room and a place for a person to repent and come back if they're truly a believer. If they go out... They won't be out for long because God will discipline and make them so miserable that they'll go back. Yes, Brett. I believe this is the, one of the biggest sins of the United States Church is the fact that the profession versus possession and this is the fact that so many believers in the, in the country don't see the difference. Yeah. And they don't see that they need church. Yeah. Or they need a fellow. Yeah. And so what you've got in, a, in the American church is 
a lot of people saying they're a Christian, professing it, but they're not actually tying themselves into community with the life of the church, demonstrating the full fruit of it. And we're not saying they're not saved. They could. It may be a strong indication, but we're not going to be dogmatic and say they're not saved. But here's the fear. Here's why this is a danger. Here's why this is a dramatic warning. Look at verse 27. If you if you if you go down this path, if you go down this path of apostasy, the question is, what is the ultimate result of apostasy? Look at what he says there. There is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What's what's the, what's the end game there? Facing God on the day of judgment and eternal hell. Look at the words he uses there. A fearful expectation of judgment day and a fury of fire. Is this a politically correct verse? What's the pastor here saying? He's basically looking his congregation in the eye and say, listen, if some of you are playing around and you're on this path of falling away and you're, you're not forsaking or, or you're not assembling together and you're deliberately sinning, there, is, there could be a fearful expectation that you will meet God on judgment day and you will not get into heaven, but you will face hell. That's what he's saying. And he kind of quotes from Isaiah 26, 11. Isaiah 26, 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Now, all throughout the book of Hebrews, what has the author been doing in this compare and contrast? What's he been comparing and contrasting? The Old Testament with the New Testament. The Old Testament was good for its time, but Jesus is better. The New Covenant is better. And so he goes back to this compare and contrast, and he says, hey, listen, here's how it was under the Old Testament. Look at verse 28. This is how it was in the Old Testament, guys. Anyone who basically sinned against the law of Moses, he would die without mercy. What was the punishment back in the Old Testament if you sinned? Stoning, death penalty, especially. So basically he's saying, listen, it was pretty bad back in the, in the Old Testament days. If you sinned, high-handed sin against Moses, against, against the law of Moses, you got death. Now let's just turn real quick. Keep your finger in Hebrews, but turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And let's just kind of see this illustrated in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7. This is um, some of the, the miscellaneous laws that God has given. And let's just see how, when, 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 Mo, when he talks about two or three witnesses during the time of Moses and what would happen, he's kind of referencing Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. So let's, let's just read that together. Everybody there, Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any other host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, 
Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of just one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And that's pretty extreme, Old Testament, right? Now, now, there was justice, right? Because what could happen? I could just not like Tiffany and say, hey, I saw Tiffany breaking the Sabbath. Let's go stone her. And they'd say, no, Sean just has a vendetta against Tiffany. We've got to get two or three witnesses. Do we see? Oh, well, Kathy saw her and Scotty saw her. Well, they're family members. We've got to get somebody else. Oh, no, Jerry saw her and Jenny saw her. Okay, so we've got witnesses. It's true. We've established it. Now we can stone her. So I'm, not pick, I'm just picking on you, Tiffany. But... Uh, but, but that's the point in the Old Testament was the writer saying, listen, it was bad in the Old Testament. You got stoned to death for breaking God's law, and there was really no mercy because stoning's pretty, not very, not very pretty thing. That's also where you have cities of yeah, and you'd have cities of refuge so that people wouldn't take a vendetta against you that, that it had to be just. So there's some court proceedings that are there to determine whether the person is truly guilty. But now, notice what he says in verse 29. You think it was bad in the Old Testament, right? Right of Hebrews says. Look at verse 29. How does he start it? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? So what's he doing? He's comparing the lesser to the greater. It was bad in the Old Testament. You got stoned. New Testament, it's worse. You don't get stoned, you get eternal hell. That's basically what he's arguing. And he, he gives three ways or three descriptions or three aspects of why apostasy brings this eternal condemnation. So you see that there in verse um, 29. There's, there's three, like three clauses or three, three issues there. So look in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who, here's number one, has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Spurned or trampled underfoot. Does any, what is, did your translation say spurned? Spurned. Literally, it's trampled underfoot. Trampled. What does it mean to trample or to spurn the Son of God? What does it mean? To, like, if you're to, like, even in our culture, what would be the metaphor if like, okay, let's say like a cockroach was, flying, was crawling across the floor and we're like, oh, that's a cockroach. And like, what, what, would be the, what would be the one thing that you'd want me to do? Step on the cockroach, trample it under my feet because it's vile, it's ugly, it's gross. We hate cockroaches. There's, there's nothing good about cockroaches. Okay. We trample it under our feet. We step on it, we hate it, we crush it. That's what the apostates doing to Jesus. They're basically saying, Jesus is gross. Jesus is vile. I hate Jesus. I want to stomp him under my feet because he is so offensive to me. It means to view him. It means to view the glorious son of God with utter contempt, anger, and hatred. That's apostasy. Does a Christian do that? Are there times where we get mad at God? Yes. Are there times when we don't understand what God's doing? Yes. 
But does a Christian live in a persistent state of hating Jesus and trampling under his foot? No. Only an apostate does that. Okay, let's look at the second thing. An apostate also, number two, profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. What does it mean to profane? Like when we say this movie has profanity, what does profane something mean? To what? To cuss it, to curse it. Basically, you are cursing Jesus. So not only are you trampling underfoot, but you're cussing him. Okay, does a Christian do that as a habitual, habitual lifestyle? Okay. And then number three, it's interesting, he brings in the Holy Spirit. What does he say in number three here? You outrage. Does yours guys say outrage or insults? Yeah, it's, it's, it really means um, to insult. And I think, guys, this is the closest verse we have to what would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says in the Gospels is the unforgivable sin. So I think if you take all these three descriptions together, so you're, you're, you're trampling under Jesus' feet, you're cussing Jesus, and you're insulting or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this is not just a one-time thing. This is a deliberate, ongoing, habitual, hardened state of rebellion. I think if you take all these three together, this shows that apostasy is a persistent, rebellious, habitual falling away from the gospel with utter hatred, contempt, and hostility toward Jesus and His work on the cross. And chapter 6 would say, if you get to that point, chapter 6 would tell you it's impossible to come back. Now, we don't know when persons reach that point. Okay. And I guess the question I'm trying to wrap my mind around is, do you guys know anybody, without mentioning names, that, is, that, that you could label as an apostate? The only thing I... Go ahead, Cindy. I was going to say you have to be really careful with that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think that we, it's really hard because I would be very hard pressed to pronounce a person apostate unless they gave me ample evidence to do so. And let me give you an example. I just came across something yesterday. There's a rapper from Britain. He's like the most famous Christian rapper from Britain. He's, he's released a lot of um, songs. Um, he just came out right before Christmas with a statement saying, everything I believed about Jesus, I've rejected. I don't believe the Bible anymore. I don't believe Jesus anymore. I don't believe the gospel anymore. Everything I believed is a lie. Um, I'm going down the path of atheism. Now, in that snapshot moment, we can look at that and say, that looks pretty much like apostasy. But like Cindy said, if he's truly one of God's elect, if he's truly one of God's child, God may in his discipline bring him back. We don't know. Only God knows that. All we can look at is the evidence of that person's life and say, man, that person's on a really dangerous path. And if they continue on that path, the writer of Hebrews would say, look at what the writer of Hebrews would say. Verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we need to be real careful that we don't pronounce a person an apostate because they could just be in a period of backsliding. It could be in a period of rebellion and God may bring them back. 
But do we want to get to the point where if a person's in a pot, like this is what we would not want to do. If a per, like if I were to meet that rapper, what would you say? Well, you know, you're just in a period of rebellion and God may bring you back, so just kind of go down that path. What would you say to a person that's in apostasy, that's in apparent apostasy? What would you want to do? There's a dire warning on your life right now. If you continue in this state, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You will face judgment. So repent and come back to Him now. Now, you guys remember my sermon from Sunday? I know that was like three days ago. <laughs> Nahum. What was, cha- what was Nahum? Chapter 1, verse 2. I mean, it was a shocking verse. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Woo! That's in the Bible. But what does the New Testament say right here? Look at verse 30. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge. It comes from Deuteronomy 32, 35-36. The Old Testament says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that, there is power, that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Now, verse 31, he kind of rounds out this warning of apostasy by saying what? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not a good bumper sticker, is it? Good coffee mug? Christian t-shirt? Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Psalm 47, 2. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So, why do you think the writer of Hebrews is giving such a strong warning about apostasy, about hell, about vengeance, about God's retribution. Why do you think he's giving this to a Christian audience? Okay. <laughs> Jerry said it. It's on the podcast in your own words. Um, to, scare, to scare the hell out of them. And we mean that literally, not in a metaphorical sense, but a literal sense. Okay. But that sounds so offensive and so... Um, not fuzzy. I'm playing devil's advocate here. That sounds so fuzzy, and so, I mean that doesn't sound like compassionate or loving or inclusive or accepting. Sometimes that's what people have to. Okay. It's called tough love. It's called tough love. <laughs> what's the danger? I mean, so what's more loving, guys and gals? Is it more loving to let a person go down the path of apostasy? Or is it more loving to warn them? To warn them. Okay. But what is our first temptation to do? How many of us like conflict? How many of us like really feel led to warn? What do we usually want to do? Somebody else will warn them. Let's, let, let me give them their space. They'll figure it out on their own. Did you ever think that maybe you are the instrument God may use to bring them back? 
in what you say to them. Now, you do it with love. You don't go up and, like, spit in their face and say, you apostate. I mean, you do it with, I mean, you can, you can, I think you can lovingly sit down. I've lovingly sat down with somebody before and say, I love you so much, I don't want you to go to hell. So repent now with all the love and tears I can give. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have to talk about hell and, and judgment by shouting at people. Uh, you can do it with love and compassion. Um, and so he sprinkles these warnings all throughout the book of Hebrews because there is this, he's a pastor. Remember, this is a sermon. When we go back to the original, when we started this whole um, study of Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews is a sermon from a pastor who is so concerned with his flock that he does not want them to fall away. So this is really a pastor's heart to his flock. Okay, so now that we've got this really, really strong warning in verses 32 through 39, he's going to shift gears. Okay. He's okay. Okay, I'm giving the warning. Let, let me let me encourage you now. So, in this last section, verses thirty. I mean, chapter ten, verses thirty-two to thirty-nine. Really, his burden is to say, remember the past, and persevere. So let's read this together, and see how he kind of shifts gears. Verse thirty-two. But recall, or maybe your translation says, remember. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." He says, remember, remember back when you were first saved. Now, evidently, we don't know what happened, but he's telling this church, when you guys first became Christians, you endured a hardship. Things were really difficult for you when you first became a Christian. And he gives two images here that come to mind that he's using. Uh, the first one is he says, you, en- you endured. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The word endured there is really a military term that means to stand one's ground on the battlefield without fleeing. So, so picture battle. What do you do in battle? What, what do you not want to do in battle? Flee, run, die. So you're on the battlefield and you're holding your ground. Do you guys ever, you probably shouldn't see this movie, but have you guys ever seen the movie, um, was, what is it, 400? Is it 300? whatever the movie was. I saw it on TV the other day, the TV version. It's about um, the, the Greek soldiers that go against, um, and they're all like staying their ground with their shields, and, and it was like very powerful. They all died. But um, <laughs> they stood their ground there at the very end and did not flee. And that's kind of the word he uses here. The other word he uses here is the word struggle. You endured a hard struggle. That word struggle was an athletic term for, for a contest or a fight. So he uses two images here, one of military and one of, of like sports, like wrestling or boxing. So when you take those two images together, 
warfare and wrestling, it seems like there was probably a pretty intense struggle. And we don't know exactly the details, but he does talk about some things that happened to them. So what exactly was the nature of this struggle? Well, the first thing he says there is that you guys were publicly exposed to ridicule. Look at verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. I don't know what that means, but in the original language, there's a hint there in some of the wording that it may have been violent or verbal and physical abuse. So they may have undergone verbal and physical abuse publicly. Do we ever see that in the book of Acts? How does the, like, was Peter and John twice, I think it was in Acts, they are beaten publicly. Paul was beaten publicly. Uh, James was, yeah, James, um, the, brother of G, uh, the brother of John was, was killed. Um, Stephen was stoned. I mean, we, we've got it all through the book of Acts. I just gave you one example, Acts eighteen seventeen. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. We know from the book of Acts that there was public beating and reproach of Christians. And he's alluding to something that happened in this church to where they were publicly exposed to ridicule. Now, thankfully in our culture, do we... Well, just to a degree, to a degree. In our culture, is there the fear of being publicly exposed to ridicule? A different level. Like, what's the worst they can do in our culture now? Call you a name, maybe. Um, sue you, call you a name, maybe defame your character. But is anybody here in danger of, like, somebody coming and beating you up and imprisoning you publicly for being a Christian? Not, not, not yet. Okay, not, not in America yet. Okay, but back then, what? The government's pushing it. The government's pushing it, okay. Okay, so, so number one, they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, but then he has an and there, verse 33, and sometimes, sometimes being partners with those so treated. So there may have been others besides those in this church that they identified themselves with who were also suffering. Um, Paul was in prison in Philippians one seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It could have been that some of their leaders or elders were in prison and they identified with them. But here's where it gets really, really interesting and sobering. Because look at verse 34. This suffering took it's looked at, had two different aspects to it what did it look like two things they had compassion on those in prison and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property now why were people in prison was this just visiting prisoners because why were they in prison for being a Christian. Now, what would have been real easy to do? 
if he got arrested for being a Christian and got thrown in jail, the last thing I want to do is to go visit him in jail because they may throw me in jail next. Isn't that our normal thought process? Okay. So let's say that half of the church got thrown in prison. And they're just rotting in prison. And nobody came and visited them. Nobody ministered to them. Nobody reached out to them. How do you think those in prison would feel about their church family? Are we really partners? Are we really in community together? Do you really love me? What's he saying here? You guys had compassion on those in prison. You went and visited them. We don't know what that looked like, but he's saying there were those that were in prison for their faith and you weren't afraid to go identify with them in prison and show compassion on them. And not only that, but you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, what's that all about? Their property was confiscated. So it would be like this. Tomorrow, like, let's say tonight, the government authorities come in, ransack your house, take all of your property, burn down your house, and, and walk away for being a Christian. How would you respond? How did they respond? They joyfully accepted it. Now that's, to me, that's amazing. And that brings up a question. How could they have such joy in the midst of suffering persecution? And he answers that for us. I mean, the answer is right there in the text, but it's hard to wrap our minds around. Look at, what it, look at the, second, the last half of verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since, here's the reason, you knew that you yourselves had a better, there's that word better, a better possession and an abiding one. What's he talking about there? What's their, okay, heaven. What's their better and abiding possession? You can burn down my house, but I have a home in heaven. You can kill my body, but I'm going to have an eternal body in heaven. And that's why it gave them joy. Do we live like that? Cindy, you were going to say something. I'm going to just come back here so you can get on the recording. It's just so I don't have to boost the audio. When um, I, go. I see this wrapping around. I mean, because it starts with, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see that day drawing near. And then he goes through all this. And it sounds like this church was doing that at first, and people got weary of doing good. Yeah. They, they I mean, it's easy for us to judge them. Yeah. But... How difficult would it be for us in that situation yeah. and people kind of... Sustain I, mean, I can see different people just kind of going, I'm done for a while. I just yeah. need a breather here. Yeah, I don't want my house burned down I anymore. I don't want to go visit you in jail. Let me just take a breather and not deal with this. And, and what he's telling them is that's not the way it's going to work. You've got to... I mean, if you do that, you're that sheep out by itself yeah. and, and Satan is a lion. Yeah. Um, but if we continue to assemble together, we're going to get back to that. Yeah. Okay, we can continue to do this because we are... Reminding each other. Yeah. We need reminding. Yeah. And we're the tr- yeah. And that's why he says remember. You gonna say something, Brett? I was gonna say I'm reminded of um, having read the insanity of obedience, where here it is in China, there's this pastors conference, and a guy from who wrote the book goes over there, and he has a couple of these pastors pull him aside and say, you need to be careful of these few pastors over here because they haven't been in prison yet, so they're not 
real believers. We're concerned <laughs> yeah. about them. Yeah. And I, I read that and I thought, what a dichotomy yeah. between the United States. There's, there's some closed countries where they, like your ordination board, if you want to be ordained as a pastor, you can't plant a church unless you've been in prison. <laughs> so that's a qualification for you to plant a church. So, um, yeah, and that's a good point, Cindy. It could have been where it's like, man, this is getting tiring. Everybody, every time we turn around, something's happening to us. We're being publicly exposed. We're being tempted to go back to Judaism. Our friends are getting thrown in jail. They're ransacking our house. It would be easy just to what? Drift, fall away. And so here's what he's going to say. He's going to challenge them. He says, okay, now, here's where you are now. This is verse 33. Verse 33, he says, okay, you've, you remember the past. You had a strong... You, had, you started out strong. There's summer forsaking meeting together. You did good by visiting each other in prison. But now, but now, what do you need to do? Well, the first command is negative. He says in verse 35, Do not throw away your confidence. In other words, don't get timid. Don't stay bold. Because there is a great reward. So don't throw away that confidence. Be bold. And the second thing is positive. You need to endure with perseverance. Verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Okay? Now, the promise for endurance is heaven, but we need to be careful just so we understand theology here. You're not saved because of your endurance, but evidence that you are saved is your, is your final endurance. Okay, so our endurance doesn't save us. Faith in Christ saves us, but the fact that we endured the end is evidence that we have been saved by faith. So they need endurance. They need confidence. And ultimately, what they need to do is... And he's going to introduce a theme here that we're going to spend the, probably the next six weeks on. You need to walk by what? By faith. And here's what he says. He's going to quote Habakkuk. In verse 37, he quotes Habakkuk 2, 3-4. And he says this, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by what? Faith. faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So not just faith, but I would say this, a persevering faith. So what's a persevering faith? A faith that endures, a faith that holds on, a faith that is clinging to Christ. Now, since he quotes from Habakkuk, it's interesting how Habakkuk addresses some of these issues. So let's, let's go back to Habakkuk. And you may have to look in your table of contents to find Habakkuk. Or you can just keep flipping through the Old Testament until you find it. I think it's after Nahum. It's after Nahum. Habakkuk. Or as I used to hear it, some people when I was growing up called it Habakkuk. 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 
All right, so Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. And here's the real issue with Habakkuk. Things are going bad in Israel. Um, if you remember when I talked Sunday about, about Assyria, okay, so Assyria was the major power that was basically taking over Israel. And there was a power that came after them that was even greater, and that was Babylon. So Babylon actually conquered Assyria, and eventually Babylon is what sent uh, the Israelites into 70 years of exile. So Habakkuk is prophesying during this transition time um, when God is promising to deliver his people, but it's interesting that, you know, how's God going to deliver his people through these pagan, these pagan nations that seem to take them over? And so you come to chapter 1, and you've got the first complaint. Habakkuk's going to complain against God, which gives you great comfort. Is it okay to complain against God? Some of you are like, no. Well, we've got a biblical example of an inspired prophet that does it. He's complaining against God. Now, let me qualify that. It is okay to complain against God, but you've got to not just stay there. It's got to, it's got to move to faith. It's got to move to trust. It's got to move to, to contentment in Him. But I think the Psalms and Habakkuk actually give you... Give you um, permission to vent to God from time to time. So let's look at Habakkuk's complaint. So chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. What's he crying out to God? What's he basically saying? I'm crying out to you, God, and you're not answering. You're not listening. And all I see around me is violence. Violence all around me. Now, Peter tells us this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So, part of complaining against God is casting your cares upon Him because you know He cares for you. And so when Habakkuk complains against God, one of the big complaints is against all the violence that's around him. The word violence shows up six times in chapters 1 and 2. And you have to ask the question, you know, why is he so upset about all the violence? Well, here's what's going on historically. What is this violence to which Habakkuk is reacting against? The faithful king Josiah had recently been killed by the Egyptians in the Battle of Megiddo. If you remember, Josiah was a good king. He made many reforms. He was a godly man. He led the nation back to worshiping the Lord. Under his rule, the book of Deuteronomy was recovered. The nation experienced a major revival, and the Passover was reinstituted. It was one of the greatest days of revival in the latter years of Israel before they went into exile under Josiah's reign. But now there is a new wicked king, which is always... There were more wicked kings than good kings. There's a wicked king walking in rebellion against the Lord. His name's Jehoiakim. 
He was the king who cut up the scroll and burned it in the fire and threatened to kill both Jeremiah and Baruch. Of all the evil kings of Judah, only Jehoiakim is said to have actually killed a prophet. So Jehoiakim did two things. He took a knife and cut out the Bible and threw it in the trash. Pretty bad. And killed a preacher. That's supposed to be God's king. And so Habakkuk's looking at this in his country and saying, God, there is violence all around. We've got a wicked king, and you're not doing anything about it. What's your plan to intercede? And we don't have time to go into this, but God, you know what God's answer is? If you think I don't have an answer, here's my answer. I'm actually going to send Babylon in to take you into captivity and judge you through a pagan nation. Well, gee, thanks, God. That's the answer I wanted to hear. That's really what God answers. But then you go down to a second complaint, chapters 12 through 17. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Basically, he's saying, listen, God, I know you're a God of justice. I know you're a God of power. I'm looking around and seeing all the violence. People are getting away with violence, but I know you're going to do something. I know you're going to act. So in in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand, my watch post, and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. He says, listen, I'm going to wait and see what God is going to do. To do. And so here's God's answer to the second complaint. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The Lord answered, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So what's God's answer? Wait. I'm going to do it. But as you wait, as you see violence, as you question, as things are unraveling, what am I telling you to do? Wait. Because the righteous will what? Live by faith. The righteous will live by his faith. So the promise is this in the immediate context of the Old Testament. This is a promise that God will punish the Babylonians in the end. And that those in Israel who trust in the Lord will be saved. In the end, God will deliver His people. And in the end, only those who have faith will endure. Does that not sound like Hebrews? Now, the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Very, very important quote. 
So let's see where these are quoted in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16-17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? That's where it's quoted first. Galatians 3, 10-11 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So what's Paul saying? Are you saved by obeying the law? No. You're saved by faith alone and the christian life is a life where once you are saved by faith you continue to what live by faith can anybody here see god if you've seen god let me know i want to i want to find out (laughs) does anybody here has anybody here been to heaven some books have been written about kids coming back, and whether we're to believe those or not. The point is this. On this earth right now, we can't tangibly see God. We can't tangibly taste God. We don't see heaven. We don't see Jesus. So everything about the Christian faith is, is, a, is by faith. But what happens to your faith when every time you turn around, in like in Habakkuk's day, there's violence, there's oppression, or like in the time of the Hebrews, he's right in there, your property's being plundered, you're, you're being thrown in jail, you're having to endure. What's the last thing you're going to want to do? Live by... What's the opposite of living by faith? Let me just ask you, what's the opposite of it? Okay, I'm hearing all different things. Living by sight, living in fear, what else? Go along with, okay. Okay, so there's, what's the opposite of faith? Let's just write some words down. I heard some. Did you say fear, Tiffany? I heard somebody say sight. Oh, hopelessness, okay. Okay, hopeless, these are great. Hopelessness, self-reliance, what are some other ones? I think Dave, yours was go with the flow. <laughs> was that kind of what you were saying? Just, just okay, so go with the flow. Anybody else want to add something that's opposite of living by faith? Evil. Okay, evil. Sin. Or sin. Hate. Okay. So, when things are bad or tough or difficult in your life, how easy is it as a Christian to default into not living by faith, but to living in, this, in these arenas? Are there times where you live in fear? Are there times when you live in hopelessness? Are there times when you live in self-reliance? Times you just go with the flow? Times you live in evil and in hate? Is this the way God wants us to live? Okay. The righteous shall live by faith. And not just any old faith, but a persevering faith. Because let's go back to Hebrews. What does he say there? Let's go back. 
sure that you know it's our lights and chaos or whatever else where that's not God. And I immediately think of Job, Joseph. I think of Paul, and there it is, the chaos at times of their lives. And that oh yeah, I'd agree with you. You, you, you have. So I guess I'm like being like, what am I saying that I, that we need to be careful with? Well, I, I just think we need to be careful about that. All those things mean that well, you're not really living a Christian life if you have no. fear, if you have hopelessness at times. You know no, I'm, I'm not saying that you're not living the Christian life. I'm just saying that God's design for His people is to live by faith, and because we're sinners we're going to oftentimes default into those things. But the writer here tells us to persevere. Don't throw away your confidence. He actually says, don't shrink back. And so I think that we need to always hold up the standard that the, the goal of the Christian life is to live by faith. It doesn't mean we're always going to do it. And if things go bad in our life, it doesn't mean that somehow we're wrong it could mean that in god's sovereignty he's allowing or ordaining bad things to happen as a way to strengthen our faith okay so it's not a it's not a name it claim it prosperity gospel where living by faith means everything in your life goes great or you're kenneth copeland and um, jesse duplantis and you're sitting around talking about how god told you to give a 70 million dollar airplane because you don't want to <laughs> be on the airplane with a bunch of demon-like people because it's just um wrong yes Yes. 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 Exactly. So when you live by faith and you you keep coming back to Christ, you keep focusing on Christ, you pray. He takes. Does he not take away that fear? Does he not give you hope? Does he not give you instead of self reliance, Holy Spirit reliance? Instead of going with the flow, does he not give you purpose? Instead of evil and sin, does he not give you the light of his presence? And then does he not give you love instead of... I mean, so, yeah, I, I think we need to balance... Yeah, I understand what you're saying, Brent. We need to be careful that we don't say, just because things are going bad in our life, it, it means that we're doing something wrong. Is that basically what you're saying? It could be... I immediately think Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go back to Habakkuk, because I've got a... I'm sorry, I, I forgot one slide here. Verse 20. <laughs> I like what God says there in Habakkuk. I think it's 320. Uh, let's just go back here. 220. Yeah, 220. Habakkuk 2.20. This is really God's answer to everything. The Lord is in his holy temple, but all the earth keeps silence before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Whoops. That is, God reigns in heavens as the absolute sovereign over all creation. God is not an idol. He's a living God. He's the sovereign God, the Holy One of Israel, who's ready to act on behalf of His people. And the commandment is hush. Literally in Hebrew, it means shut your mouth in silence. Or hush. And that is everyone. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now go back to chapter 10 of Hebrews. The writer says, listen, guys, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It has been difficult. It has been a trial. There's a temptation to not meet together. There's a temptation to drift away. There's a temptation to fall away. But don't shrink back. We are not those who shrink back. We must live by faith. 
Verse 39, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have, by those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, basically he's saying at the end of chapter 10, don't shrink back, have faith, persevere, endure to the end, have persevering faith, which is a great segue into chapter 11. What's chapter 11? It is the hall of faith. So the writer of Hebrews is pretty brilliant here because he says, listen, guys, have faith. And he doesn't leave us in the dark. He says, I'm for a whole chapter going to illustrate to you what faith looks like from the Old Testament characters. And I want to show you that. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be diving into what the faith looked like in Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and all that good stuff in chapter 11.